The Rant Network with Stuart Brisgale and David Solomon. Every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, noon Eastern. You think about it, we rant about it. Listen to us live on Facebook. Good afternoon. Welcome to our Wednesday broadcast where we are very fortunate to have uh, Hannah Celeste. She's Director of Security Programs at the Foreign Policy Council at a not-for-profit think tank called Ukrainian Prison. She is actually in the center of town in Odessa. Odessa is one of those seafront major cities that uh, the Russian military isn't that far away. Uh, and uh, I guess, you know, we thank you, Hannah, for joining us. And this is, again, an open, very loose dialogue. You feel free to jump in, say something you want to get across, because this will be rebroadcast on 30 streams all over the world. So even though that we're live now, many of us in the United States, it's Eastern time, it's 12 o'clock noon, it's probably way in the middle of the night by you. Uh, so, you know, David, do you want to start off here and ask some questions? I think, Hannah, I think where we would like to start is tell us about yourself, a little bit more about yourself, and tell us what's going on for real. First of all, thank you for the invitation and thank you for this topic. I understand that from the United States, for some of your listeners, it can sound like something happening in the middle of Europe. But definitely what is happening now, it is the divisive moment for the history, not only of Europe, but of most of the democratic states. Uh, about me, I'm a uh, um, doctor of political sciences. I worked for the think tanks dealing with the parliament and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Navy for the last uh, 18 years, probably. Uh, or even more, I am specialist in security and conflict studies, being in many conflict zones around the world, and never thought that the conflict would come to my own land, and I would need to uh, decide when the sirens are coming, should I go to the basement, or is it too far that I can stay at my office, and to continue the information warfare, trying to explain to the world what is happening uh, in Ukraine. And definitely, I've been lucky probably for the last seven days as I've been in my hometown in Odessa, the biggest seaport of the country, the Maritime Gate. And uh, comparing to what my family and friends are experiencing in uh, Kiev, in Kharkiv, in Chernigiv, I feel that I'm at the safe place as for now. Uh, even that we have the Russian navy ships been uh, uh, anchoring uh, uh, not far from the harbor. We have the attempts of the airstrike just today during the lunchtime. We had attempts to stroke our airport and uh, plenty of attempts of the saboteurs to get um, to uh, Ukraine from the uh, uncontrolled Transnistria, that is the Moldovan region that also been under the uh, Russian control for the last 30 years. So uh, uh, the situation is the real war. Uh, the real war is closer, it's closer than we can expect, but at the same time, we're learning how to uh, enjoy the small moments when you have five minutes to get a cup of coffee or 10 minutes with a good internet uh, to speak with uh, um, friends or with the people like you trying to explain what is happening here. And, um, can I just ask you a question? You talk about internet. There's different internets. Can you explain to me, what do you mean by that? We uh, luckily, uh, in general, in Ukraine, we had quite a good 4G uh, coverage, uh, very speedy. I would say that uh, in Odessa, the internet is better than in Washington and New York, at least my personal experience. And it's quite frustrating for us when we are traveling to the U.S. because we used to completely different speeds. 
But at the same time, uh, um, we are talking about both Wi-Fi and 4G. For the first six days, we had a perfect uh, Wi-Fi here in Odessa, at least. It was very good 4G. We talked with all our friends uh, around the country. Since yesterday, the, some problems started with Wi-Fi. So 4G is working still uh, much better. And let's see how it is uh, continuing. The question is that a lot of shellings that are happening, they're targeting the TV towers and communication towers. So it depends how successful were these missiles attacks in different parts of the country. Did they um, broken or not the uh, connection? Wow. David? Anna, Anna I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I asked this question on Monday to somebody who also escaped from Ukraine. But there is a lot of misunderstanding to the why. Why is Vladimir Putin singling out Ukraine? What is the, what are you hearing from people as to his his real goals, and why is now the time that he has he wanted to attack the Ukraine? It's quite a complicated issue to to take it in the uh, uh, short uh, podcast. Uh, but if to make it in brief, um, that's uh, both from his speeches, the analysis, and from the conversation with different Russian experts that we came to the conclusion he's been obsessed with the history. For him, the collapse of the Soviet Union is the biggest tragedy of the 20th century. And he's been talking for the last 10 years a lot about the restoration of empire, the new empire of, of the Russian Federation. He's been talking about the glory of the ancient times. For these, uh, he perceived it uh, from two sides. First, uh, uh, to be an empire, you need to have a great history, the very long ancient history. And uh, uh, Russia, even as a name uh, of the state, appears only in the 18th century. So he needed others' history. He needed the uh, history of Christianity coming to this land and so on. And all of these connected with Kiev, with capital of Ukraine, and with many other places in Ukraine. That's why he's been trying to appropriate Ukrainian history. And for this, you need uh, not only to appropriate the history, but also to get away of those uh, to whom this history belongs. The second, for this, you needed the control over the territories around you. So if you're restoring Soviet Union, you need the same territory as the Soviet Union needs. So he's been trying to control economically, politically, military, different uh, uh, former Soviet republics. And at the same time, Ukraine is the biggest. So for your listeners to understand, Ukraine by territory is the first biggest country in uh, uh, Europe with 40 million people. So definitely controlling Ukraine, not allowing Ukraine to join European Union and NATO, would mean that uh, Russia, as the third row, is uh, is a leader, is the uh, is a powerful state. That's why um, all of this been developing, but it's been developing in some kind of the maniac, paranoidal uh, style with obsession. His latest speeches is definitely something for psychiatric analysis, but not for the political analysis. But why now? That is probably a little bit easier question. Uh, from all my talks with the different experts and journalists uh, in the Russian Federation, how they perceived the events of the last six months. Uh, we had Afghanistan withdrawal of the United States that didn't uh, um, go very well. So it had been perceived as a weakness, as a strong weakness of the U.S. in Moscow. Then German elections when Angela Merkel, the powerful chancellor, uh, left. And uh, expectation of elections in April in France. So three states that Russia cares, at least on some level, uh, being in the vulnerable position. So they decided that is a good moment to intervene. You know, I got to ask a question. So, you know, Putin argued that he didn't want to be on NATO's doorstep. 
But by taking Ukraine, he actually then would fall on NATO's doorstep. So the argument that was given before the invasion, that was his purpose or one of the purposes that he wanted to use as to invade Ukraine. You know, we know that no one can get into the mind of a madman other than another madman. And the perception here that we, you know, seem to believe is that Putin is a madman. But let's take a step back knowing a madman's a madman. But what are they currently doing in Odessa? Are they blatantly now attacking civilian targets? Are they no longer respecting the military targets? Are they going after the people? Uh, in Odessa, the situation is a little bit better because the shellings are not so intensively. They are not targeting the downtown or something like this. So today, the attempted attack was against the airport. And Odessa airport is literally in the town. So it's, it's very, very close. Uh, um, something like 15 minutes drive from the main street. Uh, but uh, also they've been targeting near the beach area um, along, the, uh, along the city. However, if we analyze what's been happening, for example, in Chernigiv and Kharkiv, and Kharkiv the last two days being the main in the news, they targeted all civilian buildings uh, just in the middle of the town. The city council, the university, uh, the hospital, uh, the, uh, in Mariupol they targeted today uh, the special hospital for giving the birth. I'm not sure in the English word for, for this, so where all the pregnant, pregnant women are uh, being. Uh, in the city of Chernigiv, they targeted the cultural center in the middle of the town at the main square, plus hospital for the ambulance. They've been targeting not just civilian, but also those places that are usually under the protection during the war. Plus, uh, they've been very close to the nuclear plants. Don't forget that Ukraine has quite a number of the nuclear elect um, electric stations, including famous Chernobyl. And at the very first day, because Chernobyl is on the border between Ukraine and Belarus, Chernobyl being captured by the Russian forces and they were not even allowing uh, the change of the shift. So really jeopardizing the uh, security of the famous, uh, ill-famous uh, nuclear plants. But today the fighting has been happening near two other uh, nuclear plants on the south, near Zaporizhia and near Mykolaiv. So what we really understood that uh, it, it's not collateral damage anymore because most of this targeting, they have nothing with the military objects near them. So it's not the mistargeting or bad, uh, bad uh, aiming. That is just the intentionally targeting of the civilian objects to bring the panic uh, to these places and make people to surrender. Hannah, it's unbelievable. The UN General Assembly is going to set the vote, and uh, the initial is right now we're looking at about approximately 140 countries who are going to vote in favor of condemning um, Russia, which includes some states that abstained last time. But really, it's non-binding. And the, world, the, the feeling in the world is there's no teeth to this. Russia will do whatever Russia wants to do. The president of the United States gave his State of the Union yesterday, where he also barked about what he intended to do and how they will win the war against Russia. Hannah, in your what, in based on what you're hearing and what you could do, uh, what what's your experience? What can the West? What can the world really do to make sure that Putin stops today? You can't imagine what a victory is this resolution. 
First of all, uh, this resolution is important because that is so-called uniting for peace resolution. Uh, this mechanism being used uh, only five times in the history of the United Nations. It's been introduced in 1950s during the Korean War and the last time being used in, 19, in the beginning of the 1980s. So for almost 40 years, nobody used it. The idea is that when the Security Council is blocked by one of the permanent members, this uh, General Assembly is taking responsibility for the question of peace and war, what is usually not their goal. But 140 <laughs> votes in favor, that is tremendous, because in 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, only 100 countries voted in support of territorial of Ukraine. For the last three years, the resolutions for the uh, against the militarization of human rights violations in Crimea received uh, around 70 votes in favor. But 140, it is uh, from 193, that is tremendous victory and very hard work of our uh, representation. I just talked with our amb uh, ambassador that, that you can't imagine how much work done there. Why this is important still? Because other institutions of the United Nations, other countries are now referring uh, to this resolution uh, in their courts, in many other institutions. Plus, that is demonstration that the world is united against such an unacceptable behavior. And that has uh, um, practical results because we see, for example, today how many companies have been just rejecting either work with the Russian Federation or they are withdrawing their personal, they are putting the sanctions. And that is from companies like Disney to the uh, ExxonMobil or to the Shell, from oil companies to entertainment com uh, companies of Netflix and Disney to the banks, uh, to the financial institutions. That is demonstration of the joint attitude, and that's extremely important. Can it change position of Mr. Putin? Um, that's difficult to think, because when person went that far, that's difficult to get back. But uh, Putin is not the whole Russia. And even if the regular people have uh, different positions, somebody are against the war, somebody supports the war, but we also have oligarchs, we have business, and the Russian business is losing tremendously. It is billion and billion of dollars uh, that they lost at the stock market from investment that went out, from the contracts, and just from the currency exchange that fall uh, um, dramatically. That's probably the best uh, word for those numbers. And we expect that these people would go against Mr. Putin. We understand perfectly that the only future for the Russian Federation, when the Russian um, people would the power um, and in their country by themselves because they will feel the ownership for this victory. Hannah, normally, normally our, our, our show is uh, 15 minutes, but we are going to go over because this is a fascinating conversation. But let's continue this. You know, when you were talking about the financial impact, you know, we're seeing oil prices skyrocketing, but at the same time, we're seeing banks cutting off we're seeing oligarchs being hurt. We're seeing businesses. We see Russian television being cut off in the West. Uh, we're seeing a lot of these things. At what I mean, I mean, it, 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 you're, it has to have an impact on Vladimir Putin. But who in his inner circle really needs to get to him? Because it seems like he is a maniac going on his own. But are the oligarchs enough? Is is there going to be enough pressure in your opinion from within to get him to stop? 
the inner circle among the Russian president is very narrow, that's for sure. Especially during the pandemic, he became also very paranoid, uh, um, being afraid of the COVID. You can see it from all latest pictures from the meetings that he had, both with the European leaders and from his own staff, when people being sitting probably something like 10 meters uh, from him on another side of the table. And that is both psychological and physical uh, uh, distraction that uh, uh, he has as for now. What we really understand that the Minister of Defense uh, is of uh, uh, his right hand, and they've been traveling a lot together to the forest of Taiga for some spiritual procedures. What are the ha uh, hopes uh, except of the business? That's also probably security services, at least the foreign intelligence. We saw how uncomfortable the uh, um, head of the Russian foreign intelligence, uh, Mr. Narishkin, felt himself during the uh, famous uh, National Security Council where a decision has been uh, made. So we, we really hope that these people will understand uh, how tragic uh, is what is happening, not because they care about Ukrainians, but because they would understand that all of these can um, bring the collapse to the Russian Federation. Hannah, I, I got to ask, let me just sort of transgress. As you know, I'm a finance guy. So you're in a country that's under a, a mass incursion, a war by, you know, Russia. You know, your your whole economic, your whole financial infrastructure is torn apart. I mean, most people aren't receiving any income. It's not like uh, as bad as COVID, right? It's much worse. It's a war. How are people getting food, water, electricity? I mean, you know, they're still got, you still have to live. How are you surviving? You know, Ukraine appears much more resilient than many could expect. For example, yesterday I received uh, the salary from one of my consultancy for the state institution. Uh, so the banking system is working perfectly. Definitely there are some limitations for the extraction of money, for example, in ATMs, uh, but uh, nothing dangerously. So I don't feel, uh, as for now, that I have a problem. Definitely I cannot implement many projects. A lot of shops are closed, enterprises are closed, but as for now, that is only one week. And I would say even more people are not thinking about this. For example, restaurants in Odessa, uh, instead of being open, what they could do, uh, my favorite place is cooking for the Territorial Defense Forces of Ukraine. And that is a very fashionable place in the city. So all their 20 chefs are now cooking for the armed forces and territorial defense. That demonstrates the spirit and the idea of resistance uh, of this society. But in terms of currency exchange, for example, I'm looking at the numbers and um, nothing very dangerous. A little bit of uh, increase, but just few percentage. So it, it's not something significant for inflation. But how long this can be, that's another question. About food and water supply, like I have electricity, I have heating, I have internet. So all these basic uh, things are working, no problems. Uh, they also city services are trying to be uh, as much as possible in the good condition. Uh, food is still in the supermarkets, maybe limitations from some of the goods, but you need to understand that Ukraine produces a lot of goods uh, by ourselves in terms of food industry. So uh, uh, we are not exporting that much of this stuff, only, I mean, some Dutch cheese that we want, but it doesn't mean that we will not survive without supply of certain goods uh, from abroad. We are the biggest producer of many of the grains, uh, oil, uh, um, sugar, uh, honey, I mean, plenty of the stuff that people really can survive for quite a long um, uh, time. So that's why, as for now, for the day seven, there are only few towns where very heavy fighting been happening that uh, 
experience the problems. That's why we called for the United Nations and the Red Cross to assist. Unfortunately, they're afraid uh, to assist as for now because of the security situation. They're not sending their stuff. That's why Ukrainian volunteers are happening. People are donating. We had quite a wide net of volunteers who assisted our armed forces during these eight years. So these people are now using their network and uh, um, capabilities to reach those towns where they need to deliver at least some basic stuff. Hannah, to that point, let me ask you a question because, you know, a lot of people have contacted us and said, what can we do to help the people of Ukraine? And uh, you brought up donations and you brought up Red Cross and what have you. There's always a fear of donating and then the money never gets to the right people. So what can we do as individuals in terms of financial contributions, but also what can we do as people to continue to help the folks in Ukraine from afar? So first of all, in case you're afraid of some uh, uh, small charity organizations, you always can donate to several official accounts. Our embassies in different countries opened official uh, accounts for the humanitarian aid. I know that, for example, in Japan, for three days, Japanese uh, raised $17 million of the humanitarian aid. Uh, Also, there is the official account of the National Bank of Ukraine, exactly. One is to support the armed forces. Another one is for the humanitarian assistance, for the humanitarian aid. So this assistance is definitely uh, um, very important because we also would need money for the reconstruction. Uh, You can imagine, you can look to the photos, how much destroyed the uh, um, infrastructure in the cities that have been shelled. So uh, in case there are extra money left, uh, definitely they will be used for uh, these purposes. But uh, also, depending on which country you are, a lot of countries are helping refugees now by taking them to their places or providing them with some support. We know that Canada now is deciding about um, waiving the visas for Ukrainians who uh, need support. So not just for the tourist purposes, but exactly for refugees, the United States can consider some special humanitarian visas um, uh, for for these people because Poland and uh, Moldova cannot accommodate those hundreds of thousands of refugees that are now at our Western uh, borders. But that also can be the support through the trusted international organizations that are providing uh, support. And uh, I would say maybe a very strange thing for you, uh, but that is helping Ukraine. Uh, don't forget to help yourself. Um, think about information hygiene. Uh, be critical when you read the news. Uh, don't spread the fake news and disinformation. Unfortunately, we saw that quite a number of the social networks, and that's where Russia has been very successful. The US, U.S. knew it perfectly after election and after Black Lives Matter when they intervened uh, the process with disinformation and fake news. So uh, each citizen can uh, um, contribute by uh, their role in information security, by cybersecurity, but by not allowing to spread disinformation about what is happening. So, Stuart, if I may, I just put up on screen for those, for for those, Hannah, thank you very much. And for those in Canada, I put the link to the Canadian embassy, uh, the Ukrainian embassy in Canada. I'm trying to search up the U.S. one right now. There seems to be a little bit of a problem with the website. We will post it on our site, folks. Please, today, if you're in Canada, U.S., or anywhere in the world, please connect with the Ukrainian embassy to donate today. Stuart. You can find them at Facebook because uh, the website of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has been attacked by the uh, cyber criminals within the last few days. So they are working very actively on on their official Facebook and Twitter pages. Fantastic. Hannah, 
as we start wrapping this up, I, I would like you to maybe take a moment, though I know you're very well spoken and, and you, you understand the situation because you're living it. Is there something you'd like to say to everyone outside of the Ukraine-Russia area on, on, on what you really, really want people to understand as a closing note? Give you that, that chance. Freedom uh, and dignity are two main notions for the Ukrainian people. So when you think about these events, don't think about them from the geopolitical point of view. Think about them from the personal uh, uh, point of view. That as for now, Ukraine is fighting for our freedom and for our dignity. Very often, you know, I'm comparing this situation to the uh, um, home abuse. When uh, um, your relatives sometimes are afraid the scandal to get out, but your abuser is continuing to beat you. So one day you just need to make this decision and to fight for your freedom and for your life. That's what Ukrainians are doing now. Russian Federation doesn't matter about what joint or shared history they are talking about. They became that type of the home abuser that should be arrested and punished rather than accommodated uh, because of some uh, family kin. So uh, I really hope that. Ukraine will be free and uh, are sovereign, while the Russian Federation one day would be democratic and free as well. You know, I'm going to let David close, but I ask if, you know, things change or you still have access in the coming days, please reach back out to us. We'd love to put you back on. Uh, I appreciate your time. I wish you and your family nothing but safety. And obviously, you know, our friends are wishing you Nothing but the best to you and your family. Uh, David, do you want to close yeah, out? Hannah, Hannah how, what is there? Is there a way for people who are very interested in staying in touch with you? Is there a way that they can connect with you, whether it's through Facebook or LinkedIn or any other social media? Because I believe that what you said today was so impactful that I think people want to continue to hear straight from you. Uh, it's difficult to say. Maybe LinkedIn can be a possibility because honestly, I'm receiving so many requests that I will be just not able to reply everything. So it's please don't accept it personal or as, as an ignorance. It's just that in such times you make priorities and uh, you need to concentrate on something. But really follow different Ukrainian websites where we're trying to spread the information and uh, we will do our best to inform international community uh, timely and trustworthy. Hannah, it is truly appreciated. We wish you well, safety, and uh, hopefully a speedy end to this absolutely senseless conflict. And we look forward to catching up with you when there are no more bullets being fired in the Ukraine. Thank you, Hannah. Stay well and stay safe. Thank Bye. you very much. Thank you, everyone. Have yourself, everybody. We wish you well. We look forward to seeing you again on Friday. We look forward to your comments. Thank you again, Hannah. Everyone, take care. And please support the people of Ukraine.